welcome back to another daily walk. Um, my apologies if there's uh, issues with the sound. <clears throat> it's raining out. I've remembered my microphone, but I forgot my uh, USB adapter that I need to hook the microphone in. Um, but I wanted to get this out and uh, the setting. I have a nice outdoor setting. It's dry under a little pavilion here. Um, and I wanted to get you guys a final wrap up of the Lucifer principle from the Christian perspective. And uh, this is kind of uh, hopefully won't be excessively long, but it could potentially be a longer one because there was a lot that could be said at the end of this book. And kind of the ending culminating point, this author, Howard Bloom, reminds me a whole lot of Elvis Huxley. And he says, I do not want there to be a God because it frees me to my lusty passions. Elvis Huxley was at least honest. Um, and a lot of things that Bloom is talking about in the last section and in the, the final wrap-up here uh, is that um, he, he's talking about the decline of American society, and he has this one particular section uh, that I wanted to comment on, and it's called Scapegoats and Sexual Hysteria, which is sort of a rehash of a chapter he talked about earlier where he uh, addressed a lot of the issues regarding the, you know, some people are blaming the outright sexuality on the declines of things. And once again, he, uh, the author of the Lucifer Principle finds himself in that location. And that's kind of telling in all honesty uh, because um, what, it, what it shows me about him and then going back and, and re reviewing his history, there are some things about this author I forgot about that, that he was one of the co-founders of the anti-censorship uh, movement that was uh, in the music industry, the anti-censorship group that was working with Frank Zappa against guys like, um, uh, it was Al Gore's wife, I forget her name, was, they were all embroiled in this music debate in the 80s, which finally led to the addition of the parental advisory explicit lyrics, which itself was, is controversial. Now, there's a lot of history in this, and I have a book coming out here soon in the next few months, hopefully. Um, that addresses a lot of this issue in perilously fine detail, so I don't want to get into all of the, the part here. Um, but in summary, if, a, if an organization or a business or a group or, or whatever is starting to get too far to the way extreme ends, government needs to step in and regulate. So at the movie industry, the television industry, the music industry, and the video game industry have done is stepped in to do voluntary rating systems, which I think is the best option. It's excessively flawed. It's horribly flawed. But at least I, as an informed consumer, I like those the best because I know that if I take a DVD and I look at the back of the DVD, I can see what it's rated and why it's rated. And I can make the decision for myself if I want that in my mind or in my family's mind. And so I don't have a problem with the rating. I don't want, their, I don't want the government to be censoring anything. But I want complete conform, informed consent and I want... The, and I want it to be illegal for a child to go and get something that our culture as a whole might say is probably inappropriate. Well, Howard Bloom helped co-found the anti-censorship movement that fought against even adding a parental advisor explicit lyrics on the music things. And so it's no surprise that we see him again in this area saying anybody who raises issues of outright overt sexuality or other bad trends in public media 
it's not a surprise that he looks at those people and go, well, they're just scapegoating. They're looking for things. Because in Bloom's mind, we have this innate thing that is, he used the words miraculously earlier in the book, despite not believing in a God. He can't explain it. But our God explains everything in Lucifer principle exactly with a serpent who deceived Eve got her husband to break God's one commandment, introducing sin and the Lucifer principle. He's talking about this innate thing in all of us is exactly what the scripture tells us it's going to be. But what I thought was particularly telling about this part is he had already talked about the Women's Temperance League, which I agree had some issues. And and as you know, I'm not all that big fan of the focus on the family approach. Let's legislate our morality to an unbelieving world. That doesn't solve any problems either. We as individual Christians need to take a stand for ourselves, our lives, all families, and we need to have the ability to do that. But where he actually goes from this point on page 284 is he, he talks earlier about, about um, the Oscar Wilde raising these issues in Britain. And then he writes, then another author came to the rescue. In 1987, America disgorged its own Max Hordow. He is an obscure professor from the University of Chicago named Alan Bloom. And like Nordu, Bloom knew exactly who to blame for America's decline. He did not level a bony finger at the industrialists who ignored commercial possibilities of flat panel and VCR, but eerily echoed Nordau. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that guy's name right. Bloom fulmigated against a set of dead German philosophers, Nietzsche, Freud. Freud was not German. Um, Heidegger. And like Nuraud, he raged against popular culture, but instead of Oscar Wilde, Bloom attacked rock and roll. Sex, hate, and smarty, hypocritical version of brotherly love are the themes of rock, he declared dogmatically. Such polluted sources issue a muddy stream where only monsters can swim. In MTV videos, Bloom pontificated Hitler's images recur frequently in exciting contexts. Noting um, noble and sublime, profound, delicate, tasteful, or even decent um, can find a place in such tablets. He claimed that rock is a gutter phenomenon, obsessed with sex, violence, and drugs, ruining the, quote, imaginations of young people, end quote, stealing their zest for learning, impoverishing their emotions, and turning them into callow participants into nation's decline. And one of Rock's primary crimes, Bloom claims, was an overt celebration of sexuality. In Bloom's view, only when sex is driven underground can man create. The pent-up libido, Bloom claimed, is the driving force behind all ennobling accomplishments. The professor, by the way, was a bachelor. Okay, there is so many issues in there. First and foremost, he's talking about the closing of the American mind, which I have and I have read, and I would encourage everybody to also read this book. Read the two books. This is one of the things that he writes. Now, Bloom is not a Christian, but he writes this on page 60 of Closing of the American Minds. 
My grandparents were ignorant people by our standards, and my grandfather held only lowly jobs, but their home was spiritually rich because all things done in it. Not only what was specifically ritual found their origin in the Bible's commandments and their explanation of the Bible's stories and commentaries on them and had their own imaginative counterparts in deeds of the myriad exemplary heroes. My grandparents found reasons for the existence of their family and the fulfillment of their duties in serious writings, and they interpreted their own sufferings with respect to great and ennobling past. The simple faith and practices linked them to great scholars and thinkers who dealt with the same material, not from outside or from alien perspective, but believing as they did, while simply going deeper and providing guidance. There was respect for real learning because it felt a connection with their lives. What is the community and a history mean? A common experience inviting high and low into a single body of belief itself. All right. And so what we're talking about in this entire book is he's really talking about this return, this need to return back, um, this need to return back to a day where we thought, where we moved in our minds and our intellects, not our lusty passions, to quote Aldous Huxley again. Remember that Huxley did not want to be a god because it told him that the things he was doing is called sin. Okay, that's kind of what he's talking about. And what Howard Bloom does here is he's, he's saying that, that Alan Bloom, in Closing the American Mind, is just saying, you know, all this stuff, only when sex is driven underground can man create. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying sex underground. Howard Bloom believes, like the rest of the ignorant world, what Christians think is called prudish. Like, ooh, get sex. Sex is bad. Sex is dirty. Sex is not dirty. Sex is not bad. It was created by God for a purpose. You take it out of the fireplace and put it in the middle of the living room, it's bad. Because it's not in its right time, it's not in its right place, which is in a committed marital relationship. One man, one woman. Sex is beautiful. It doesn't drive us underground. But this is what Alan Bloom is talking about. This is on page 74 and 75, because this is an observation made in 1987. He says, picture a 13-year-old boy sitting in the living room of his family home doing his math assignment while wearing his Walkman headphones or watching MTV. He enjoys the liberties hard won over by centuries of the alliance of philosophical genius and political heroism consecrated by the blood of martyrs. He has provided comfort and leisure by the most productive economy ever known to mankind. Science has penetrated the secret of nature in order to provide him with a marvelous lifestyle of electronic sound and image reproduction he is enjoying. Okay, so note that he sets up the accomplishments of our society. Think of all the great accomplishments. What is it we choose to do with our time? Bloom carries on. This is Alan Bloom from Closing of the American Mind, page 75. And what does all this progress culminate? A pubescent child whose body throbs with orgasmic rhythms, whose feelings are made articulate in hymns of the joys of onism or killing of parents, whose ambition is to win fame and wealth in imitating the drag queen who makes the music. In short, life is made into a nonstop, commercially prepackaged masturbational fantasy. That's exactly what Alan Bloom writes. What's the point? The point is, is that our culture, our society, our direction, our music, our television, everything we have moves us toward the baser instincts. There's no animal brain over here that some of us are functioning and others evolve, are functioning in the high evolved brain. That's not what they're talking about. What they're talking about philosophically is 
our entire culture moves in. And of course, Howard Bloom in the Lucifer Principle, he fought against these types of things. He wants there to be outright sexuality in all the music because who cares? But you expose that kind of stuff to children and that's what the quasi-censorists and the censor people weren't saying, let's ban this. They're saying, let's allow informed consent. Let's pass laws so a 13-year-old can't walk into a store and buy a Playboy magazine. Or the musical equivalent thereof, which if you look at a lot of music, is the musical equivalent of a Playboy magazine. All we're saying is, hey, if you as a parent don't regulate what your kids do, whatever, at least you're the one buying it and giving it to them. We don't want the children going in and buying that kind of stuff. That's what the argument has to say. Now, he actually said here, um, he actually says here a little bit later um, that Bloom, I, I forgot to mark this part out, and I don't want to spend the time finding it, but it is in this section here where he talks about, um, oh, the, uh, let, let's read the next section here, page 284 on the Lucifer Principle. Bloom never cited a single fact that would justify his bizarre coupling of sexual gratifications with creative sterility. What's more, his view of rock is absurd. He says, quote, drug lyrics had practically disappeared from rock music over 15 years before Bloom, Bloom wrote this book. What in the hell is Howard Bloom smoking? This is 1987 is when this came out. You know, it was in that same era that Master of Puppets came out by Metallica. Master, Master, where's the dreams that I've been after? Master, Master, your promise is only lies. Laughter, laughter, all you ever hear or see is laughter, laughter, laughing at my cries. Master of Puppets is about heroin. You moron, written in the same time period that Alan Bloom's Closing the American Mind. There is direct evidence. If you read, look over the lyrics of that entire album, Master of Puppets, the first song is violence. The second song, I forget what the second song is. The third song, if I recall, is the thing that should not be, which is <gasps> drugs again. Metallica's message in Master of Puppets was the danger of drugs. Face it, Bloom, Howard Bloom. Drugs are a prevalent team. In fact, I talked to a kid today, and it's not even—it's not even in here. It's—it's it's not even just now. It was then too. I was deeply entrenched in this type of music. There was a lot of sex. There was a lot of violence. Not necessarily exclusively. Um, nineteen seventy-nine which is only, you know, 10 years before writing of Closing the American Mind, comfortably numb, Pink Floyd, <laughs> God, strong out on drugs, <laughs> okay? The entire drug revolution. Now, the, now, if Howard Bloom really wants to believe that he never cites a single fact that would justify his bizarre, boom, this is it. Dancing in the dark. Five scholars more researched than the Lucifer Principle, looking exactly at youth, popular culture, the electronic media, five different scholars, maybe six. Quentin Schultz, Roy Anker, James Bratt, Williams Romansky, John Wurst, uh, Lambert, I can't pronounce that, Zeidvart. All scholars, all professors, they took a sabbatical together to research this book. I believe it was written in 1990. Just shortly after closing the American mind, this has as many biblical reference uh, bibliographies as that does. Um, now their notes are spread throughout rather than at the very end, but it's a good looks like a good forty pages or so of bibliography, ex examining in fine detail the change and the shift of 
popular arts, popular media, popular everything as, uh, as everything shifted. It looked at, at the, the drugs, it looked at the sex, it looked at all of the stuff that goes into, uh, into the popular culture. So there, Howard Bloom, is your book looking at all of these things regarding the observed things. But Howard, Howard Bloom, remember, he wanted to fight against that because he wants it to be rampant sexuality and everything because that's art, just like someone peeing in a jar with a crucifix. Yes, that was actually done before under the name of art, carried around, and someone was paid $100,000 for it. Because this is a culture that wants to deny that there's a God. So... Let's go ahead and wrap up the last part of uh, the last part of the uh, of this. He says, "Our task is to outwit the Lucifer principle." What's the Lucifer principle? It's this thing inside of each of us that that drives us towards wickedness, drives us towards fighting, drives us towards all these things. It's the very exact thing that the Bible says is called sin. It is the sin nature within us, and there's something we can do about it. It's called Jesus Christ. Now, the problem is. The problem is, is that there's a lot of representations of the church that have not been faithful to what the church really is over the years. And that's something to keep in mind. Um, but that being said, what I thought was really fascinating is, is this. Um, the, this is a fascinating section, and this is in the epiglog on page 328 of the Lucifer Principle. He says, the hunger of the superorganism and the ambition of the meme trap uh, trap us in a moral dilemma. Violence is the most appalling human expression, yet we cannot wish our way to peace. We cannot lash each other with lectures, pound our chests with guilt, and voluntarily throw away our arms. We live in a threatening world, a world where other human beings, very much like ourselves and like us, our fellow humans, are dangerous. And that is exactly what the Bible describes as ourselves. Who we are the natural man. That is a perfect picture of what the Bible says we are. And then he goes on. There is one small consolation of this grim picture. Snapping and snarling at each other may be automatic, but holding, caring, collaborating are built into us too. Kind of like, I don't know, we are created in the image of God? In one Harvard study, Bloom goes on, a group of experimental subjects was shown a film watching the footage actually boosted the immune system activity. The nature of the cinematic piece? A documentary on Mother Teresa who centered her life on helping others. Oh, so your one example to bring us out of this is a person actually living out the faith we are commanded to live in our Bibles. Bloom, thank you for making my point to me. He says, Mother Teresa, who centered on her life on helping others. No, she was a lady who centered her life on following the commands of Jesus. It's shocking. I know. I know. The mere sight of the work focused, kind, focused on kindness triggered a deeply buried response in the human brain. We desperately need each other, and that need is, is, uh, that, in the, in that need is hope. people. That is exactly what the gospel is. We live in a horrible, dangerous, destructive world where we kill each other, we maim each other, 
We gratify our own desires. We gratify our own things. We lie to protect ourselves. We are, by nature, objects of wrath. That is exactly what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2. We were by objects or by nature an object of wrath. Let me go ahead and read that for you. Because I actually have a Bible with me today. So this is in Ephesians chapter 2. I actually have an entire sermon on this section of scripture. I'll see if I have it online somewhere. I'll point to it. He says, You were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Does that not describe what the Lucifer principle has been talking about the whole time? Yes, it does. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So in the ages to come, we might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not the result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. That is the gospel. We are unable to save ourselves. God saved us. He redeemed us. He gave us a heart that is now turned from all of the absolute desire to do wickedness into turning it into something where we could actually love and care. That's the gospel. It's not necessarily what the church has wanted us to do over the years, because the church has been corrupted a lot over the years. It's been corrupted in old days. It's being corrupted now with church growth garbage. It's not the real gospel. The gospel is found in the scriptures. And when we live out our life as the scriptures command us to live, we get this funny thing. The only ray of hope that the Lucifer principle talks about is a Christian actually living out the life of a Christian. Is that not interesting? Because this is what is written in Titus chapter 2, starting in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope in that appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds." Howard Bloom vehemently denies the one thing that brings him what he's asking for because he does not want the answer to be Jesus. He doesn't. He doesn't want the answer to be Jesus. He looks at Jesus with disdain. He even says here in, in the concluding parts, he says that, um, he, he even says the. Um, 
the governor's on page 323. The governor sent the rule to the Roman provinces, periodically lost their tolerance for nonconformists, and published, punished them brutally. They crucified a backcountry preacher of peace and humility named Jesus because his views differed from the standard issue dogmas approved by imperial authority. I will remind you that no, that's not how it happened. The Roman governors did not want to crucify him. They were afraid of a riot, and so they allowed it to happen, but they made sure they did it without their consent. Sorry, Howard. Apparently you don't know your scriptures as good as you thought you did. But the former carpenter was only one of a thousands who twisted for hours, hanging by nails from a wooden beam. And he is the only one that didn't have to go. He went willingly to save me and to save you if you placed your trust in Jesus. Thank you for tuning in. Our Walk in Christ podcast is a listener-supported presentation. For more information about how you can help, check out ourwalkinchrist.com forward slash support or our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash Tom M. That's T-O-M-M. Digital and paperback books are available on several online bookstores or at our website. Once again, the website is ourwalkinchrist.com.